Hey, Colton Classic Podcast friends and fiends. It is I, your host, Nate Wyckoff. I wanted to let you know what is special about this episode. It is that it was originally intended as a mini-sode, meaning a short 10 to 15 minute episode as a bonus uh, that would come later in the week after the normal episode is posted. However, because our hosts and guests, yes, myself included, were so passionate about the subject, it became a full-blown episode. So I am proud to present it to you here as a full episode. Thanks so much for listening to Colton Classic Podcast and enjoy. Welcome to Colton Classic. <laughs> Welcome friends and fiends of the pod to another episode of Cult and Classic. We have a mini episode coming at you, which as you regular listeners will know, our mini episodes are not all that mini. This time the theme is sequels better than the first. Uh, I am your host, as always, comedian and horrornews.net staff writer, Nate Wyckoff. With us, as often, we have Jeff Tucker. How you doing, Jeff? What up? That was boisterous, as always. So much energy. We also have Tad Mastriani. How are you doing, Tad? Exhausted, but fantastic. Yeah, life gets in the way. I, that's why I urge everyone on this show to quit their jobs so they can fulfill their true purpose as a Colton Classic uh, co-host. The next on our awesome list of roster is Amanda Longley. How are you doing, Mandy? I'm good. Um, ready to go the distance on this sequel. The distance. That's right. And mm-hmm. in case everybody's wondering, yes, it is late for us. That is why everyone's a little tired, but I think things will heat up when we start talking about sequels better than the original. And uh, we've All got- your answers some- are wrong. It's, that's pretty much what everyone's going to feel, I think. I think it's going to be a blood fight here. Uh, oh, mine's wrong. I, <laughs> I, want to, I want to also tell our listeners that you can watch us on video for every episode, including most of our interview episodes, by becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash cult and classic podcast. For a dollar a month, you get videos plus extra stuff like extra videos and podcast episodes with new reviews, more information, uh, fun stuff. You also, if you do $5, you get an autographed custom uh, cult and classic trading card every every uh, month. And if uh, you are a full drinker of the Kool-Aid, you can do $10 and you will get a special zine as well as a custom trading card and access to all of the videos as usual. Awesome stuff coming up. So sequels better than the original. I don't even know where to start here, uh, but I think what we're going to start with is Tad. Tad, which sequel did you choose as being better than the original? So I pulled something out of left field in the comic book uh, movie genre that's been going on for, I think, 20 years now, and, uh, and go out on a limb and say that Hellboy 2, The Golden Army, was an infinitely better movie than Hellboy 1, which maybe to Nate and some listeners may be a surprise, but um, I had a, a, a come-to-Jesus moment, I guess you could say, about Hellboy as a whole, not because I actually saw the new movie. I haven't even seen the new Hellboy movie because I thought, what the fuck's the point? Ron Perlman's not Hellboy. He really made that movie. But um, I distinctly remember a few years ago sitting down and trying to watch the first Hellboy for the first time in, I think, 10 years. Was it 10 years? Probably about 10 years. And uh, I couldn't get through the whole fucking thing. 
And so this is basically going to be mainly, this is uh, addition by subtraction because I think that the first Hellboy movie was a really great effort, and a, but it was also a product of its time and also fairly low budget. And it does not hold up very well today. It really was. It's one of those movies. When did it even come out, Nate? Like 2002, 2003? The first Hellboy movie? It yeah. actually came out. Let me do my little check here. Because I remember us going to see it in the theater. Yep, 2004. Being really excited. So, yeah, that was around the Daredevil era. And uh, lo and behold, turns out that a lot of movies that aren't called Spider-Man didn't really hold up all that great from that era. They were still trying new things. And Nate knows I am a big uh, fan of Guillermo del Toro's work. I've, I believe I've mentioned it in another podcast because I loved his interpretation um, of Hellboy. But working on such a small budget, you go, go back and watch that movie. I dare you to be able to get through half of it because it's not the problem with Hellboy. I thought Ron Perlman made a, did a fantastic job. Um, I can't remember the actor's name, but he played David Crane in... Uh, uh, Frazier, who played Abe Sapien. Both of them were, yeah, yes, thank you. They played fantastically for the roles. But the problem is that almost everybody else sucks so bad. Okay. What? <laughs> no, what? I don't just. So, fight one! Fight, it's time fight. to fight. Okay. So I actually like Hellboy 2. Um, the effects are, it is a spectacle. Uh, but. I would, I would say, I would disagree about the, personally, I think the first one's stronger. It is an origin story. And I actually think the graphics hold up pretty well because it is a lot, both of them have a lot of practical <laughs> effects. Um, Doug Jones being Abe Sapien is phenomenal. I don't think anyone's going to argue about that across the board. Um, I like Selma Blair a lot. I, I thought she did a good job, but, um, you know. Uh, we can differ on those opinions. We're what exactly? So when you said it was difficult to watch, was it? Did you find the effects that uh, that offensive, or was it the plot itself that you had problems with? Because I think in that one, we sort of it seems sort of listless because we follow Hellboy as he doesn't know what the fuck's going on with his life, right? That's part of the problem, and I think the movie tends to drag and especially in that second half where I basically quit because I realized I've watched this movie a bunch of times and I don't actually need to watch it for the fifth sixth time I own the director's cut and found that uh, when I tried to trade it in and figured oh this this rare director's cut should totally be worth some money I would I offered was offered two dollars for it um, the problem that I found is that I like Selma Blair, but I felt that her interpretation of this character was poor. She basically, oh, it was so wooden to me at that. At, and the graphics, keep in mind, for a movie of that era, back then, I distinctly remember us going, wow, this looks really good. And they're using some practical effects. And then you go back and look at some of those practical effects and you realize, oh my God, this was low, but this was pretty low budget. That monster does not look very good when it's swinging the tentacle around. And I'm, uh, he's and, distinctly uh, rubber. The, it's, it's, the, it's, and it's, the it's like, kind of creatures. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things you can get away with, with some of the other cult movies that we watch. And I consider this, that this Hellboy movie to be more of a cult movie when it comes to the comic book genre, because Hellboy is not a popular, uh, outside of the comic book world. He's not yeah, as popular. Yeah. Yeah. It, people know him, but it's not, it's not mainstream. 
And I don't think it ever, I mean, Mike Mignola never intended Hellboy to be mainstream as far as I can tell. I'm sure he wanted to make some money, but I don't think he ever intended it to be a, like part of the stable. But uh, Well, and I think one of the interesting things about Hellboy as a, as a film series is that the comics for Hellboy are actually quite different. Um, the idea, so for those who don't know anything about Hellboy, uh, Hellboy is uh, a character that is, he looks kind of like a demon with his horns cut off. He's big red guy with a tail and his right arm is the big stone right arm. And he is paired with other sort of um, mythological themed superheroes, uh, as well as uh, like people with powers like telekinesis. And their job is to sort of investigate and take care of any supernatural problems across the world. Um, there's an overarching story where Hellboy is actually sort of the Lord of Hell and, and, and should he turn evil, he basically brings about Armageddon. So that, there's lots of neat characters. Um, it, the story goes back to World War II and the Nazis. Uh, so there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. It's sort of the perfect territory for Guillermo del Toro uh, because not only is he a phenomenal director and writer, as Tad said, but he started in special effects. Uh, he's a great artist and a great special effects artist. And, um, you know, he cut his teeth well before he was given uh, Mimic uh, to, to sort of show off his skills as a filmmaker. Um, and he was forced, if you watch that film, it's an interesting film, but his hands were tied by a lot of the plot, which it is kind of, uh, I think the reason why the film isn't a little better than it is. But in Hellboy 1, I, I, I did like, I think the characters carried it for me. Like you have, you know, the villainous character who's addicted to surgery. And so he's his body is a mess and he's constantly covered in like a, a latex uh, bondage suit. Um, and absolutely an iconic character. Yes. Um, I thought that was done extremely well. It's just that you have great antagonists, you have mm. interesting protagonists and a boring fucking story because ultimately I just don't think they had the money or the clout to do a story that they really wanted to do or do that story well because why did they throw in useless agent number five who is a complete wuss bag and that that like it didn't bother me when I when I watched the movie sure. the first few times but god going back get getting like you're you're supposed to be basically the equivalent of like a badass men in black slash fbi agent someone throws a fucking rock at you and you're like hey who threw that and it's like you are such a jack off well and it's interesting because uh the it is it's not what i would consider a low budget movie in actual money but for a film that gets national release it was low budget and actually if i remember correctly Guillermo del toro um was afraid that ron perlman wouldn't do it uh, because it was so low, but Ron Perlman loves Guillermo del Toro, uh, as, as we all do. And that was um, why he did it. And they'd worked together previously on Blade Two uh, when Guillermo del Toro directed that one with Wesley Snipes. That's, and that's a legendary goddamn movie. So it, it will, I'm sure we'll talk about it. Um, yeah. Hellboy 2. Yeah, I'm sure it'll come up at some point. <laughs> hmm. so, um, so here's the thing. Hellboy 2, The Golden Army, what did it fix for you that made it so much head and shoulders above the original? So for me, Hellboy 2, there were, it, I think it was down to, just, and it sounds weird, but yes, you are correct on the spectacle thing, because when that movie came out, 
they kind of they they removed the characters I didn't like, so that was great. Um, but it also kind of added more stakes, which is funny because the first movie was basically the world's at stake. But then you but then the movie introduces the idea that you know there isn't just Earth that you have to worry about. The whole theme of the movie is that Hellboy is essentially one of those mythical creatures that um, the that the that this group was formed to to you know either combat against or at least keep track of. And the elves really had a serious problem with, uh, with humanity because humanity is basically giant douchebags. Go figure. And it's a, it's a conflict of interest for Hellboy because it's, it, th- and, that's, I, and I think that's why the stakes are higher because in the first movie, it's, he's, he's a, basically a pawn. The protagonist is a pawn. In this movie, there's a lot of stakes for him personally because he is torn between the fact that humanity is basically an adopted race for him. And meanwhile, there are other races that, are, that have been essentially almost genocided at the point of extinction by humans. And he's defending essentially a genocidal race. And it's like, wow, that's, that's, a, that's a very deep theme for a comic book movie. Mm. And overall, I absolutely would not have blamed Hellboy for siding with the elves. And also, um, I can't remember what year did. Uh, I, why? Why am I so bad at dates? What year did the Golden Army came out? Come out two thousand eight. So four That's years after the original. That's what I thought. It was basically the Iron Man era, right as the MCU was starting. Yep. Um, the the thing that I realized is that that's the reason. This movie is one of the reasons why I didn't like Thor two that much because I felt like this movie did that subplot way better than Thor two because they felt like very mm. similar movies and. Despite the fact that, um... well, there's God, no, I'm... there's no way that um, I think even even contemporary comic book movies, maybe especially contemporary comic book movies, can compare to the spectacle, the set design, the prop design, the creature design of Hellboy Two. I mean, like you said, everything is crammed in there, and that's sort of when I mentioned earlier that the films are different beasts in the comics. Um, it's because of the character of Hellboy is definitely more grouchy teen in the movies um, and it allows for more humor whereas he's pretty sure of himself in the comic books but he's very reserved he doesn't have a whole lot of overwhelming personality where in the movies he does Uh, and I I really credit Ron Perlman for that Um, but the amount they both the comics and the film share this tie to um, to world folklore and mythology and I think that's what you're talking about with Hellboy the Golden Army uh, Hellboy 2 The Golden Army compared to Thor The Dark World. Thor is pulling from folklore that's filtered through the old, old, old Thor comics, whereas Hellboy 2 is pulling from folklore that's directly pulled, um, you know, is in the comics, but is directly pulled from the source material, yeah. um, you know, old Irish folklore, um, the, the, the elves and the, um, the tooth fairies that are unleashed on the populace in this movie and it rip people's teeth out. It's, it's, it's insane. The whole thing, it's just all over the place. It's, it's, um, that's, that's, I mean, that's, that's the thing that drew me to it was they were able to start telling bigger stories. That's like, you go from the low budget origin story that, that definitely was a product of those early 2000s experimental, like, what are we going to do with this? It's, it's, it's even like when you go back and you look and see, 
how on the nose they were about like everything like hey look he eats a lot of food hey look he loves cats hey look he's really snarky and smokes cigars they shove it in your face the entire time and it, it that's one of the reasons why at first i was very um judgmental i guess is the only word i have right now for how they handled tony stark in the first couple iron man movies mm. it felt like they left out a lot of his character when i realized that they dropped a lot of stuff about tony stark that wasn't actually really important like yeah. they never really they they only slightly touched on the the whole arc with tony's alcoholism and all that in iron man 2 and, and then they was, dropped it right there it was a failed and, effort yeah and and frankly it worked great because tony's alcoholism in the comics is a huge plot point, but is it really important to Tony Stark as a character? Not I mean, really. Well, and I mean, it's sort of when people stopped liking Tony Stark, right? Like, I mean, we right. we love Tony Stark when he's uh, kind of a, a fun, you know, the 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 fun version of Bruce Wayne. Um, but then the alcoholism brings him down to below us, and it, it loses its mystique. And and the films, I think Marvel decided probably right, clearly rightly, that uh, that's not what audiences want from them. Right. Um, it, let, let's listen to this clip from from Hellboy to the Gold Iron. This is one of my favorite scenes, actually. It's um, Hellboy and uh, another character who's superior in the, uh, the 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 bureau where they work in essentially a locker room. Look, agent. I know you don't like me, but I could take away your badge. Never had one. Kept asking though. You will learn to obey me, follow protocol, and stay focused at all times. Uh, that word, focused? Yeah, with your accent. I wouldn't use it that much. I knew Professor Broom, young man. You didn't know Professor Broom? Yes, I did. Shut After up. my Shut accident, up. he designed this container suit. A wonderful man. And even then, he was very much hey, future. He... Stop it. Right now. Oh, what? Are you threatening me? Because I think I can take you. Excuse me? You heard me. I couldn't hear you from uh, all the way over there. I can take you because you have one fatal flaw. Oh, I want to hear it. No, you don't. You can't take criticism. <laughs> I, I love that scene. Um, and props, can any of you guess uh, whose voice plays Johan? That's Seth MacFarlane, uh, voice, uh, and, voice actor and creator of Family Guy, American Dad, uh, Johnny Bravo. Um, he does a great job. His voice is phenomenal, and he yeah, plays Johan Krauss very well. Um, I think this scene is also one of the things that, that I didn't like about this, and I'm curious to hear what you thought of it. I felt like Hellboy is much angrier in this one. Um, and it leads to a lot more violence on his part. And it's kind of a plot point, but not really. Um, I feel like it was something that was probably pivotal in an early version of the story, but was dropped off. And there were too many elements of me. Like he, at one point they're in like the, the sort of monster night market and he ends up killing a, a random monster who sort of bumps him and pisses him off. And it just, it didn't ring true for the character for me. And even though it was a fun scene and visually appealing, and that was, um, that was my one problem with this particular movie. They, I think they wanted to follow an arc where Hellboy was a little edgier because of the death of Dr. Broom in the first movie. And it, I can't remember the, the, I can't remember clearly what the timeline is between the two films, but I'm sure that they probably had planned a trilogy because 
everyone plans trilogies at this point, and they were probably working an arc with him where he was gonna, this was gonna be the, ang- the movie where he doesn't, he has to, he doesn't know what, how to deal with his grief. He's picking fights with everybody. And someone would be like, this is why Liz left. And then he, got, he gets into a massive fight with them again and all that. And why this other douchebag that I hate and don't ever want in another movie again left. And, and then it would be all his fault. It would be the Empire Strikes Back of Hellboy, too, of, of Hellboy movies. And then the third one would be his redemption where he starts being a mature adult because it's about time he started growing up. It never happened, obviously, because there was no Hellboy 3. We just got reboots or a reboot, but that's, that's the impression I got, is, is usually when I see the, the, the character is angry, it's, it's unresolved grief, and it's usually, there's gonna be a character arc where the character actually grows the fuck up, because Hellboy is a giant child. That's the whole yeah. point of the first movie, is look at, look, he's a giant child, ah, ha, ha, I eat, and I love kitties, and I feel really bad, because my dad died, and I killed the Nazis and all that, come on, man. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think that's a good summary. And just because I can't remember if you mentioned it or not, David Hyde Pierce did the voice of Abe Sapien in the first film, but he did not do it in the second. Um, it was uh, the studio. Doug Jones has a great body for special effects, and he's a fantastic actor. But for some reason, studios could not handle his voice, and there's nothing wrong with it. Um, but they just didn't want it, so they f- sort of forced Guillermo del Toro's hand, um, uh, and. Uh, um, and and have him uh, use David Hyde Pierce. David Hyde Pierce himself, um, because of this situation, he took the role and he tried to m- make his voice sound like Doug Jones' actual voice. And then when he was um, called to do press junkets for Hellboy, he refused because he didn't want Doug Jones to not be credited as Abe Sapien. So he refused to go on the press junket. So when the, um, uh, when the film went to be produced at Universal for the sequel, um, they didn't make that same mistake. And uh, they let Guillermo del Toro allow Jones to do the voice. So it was a really interesting case of when um, uh, producers yet again try to do something against the creative control of the ca- not just the director and the writer, but the cast. Uh, and their sort of hand gets slapped. And that doesn't happen too often. And it's always awesome to hear about when it does. Because mm-hmm. Doug Jones, he was also a silver surfer in uh, Fantastic Four Rise of the Silver Surfer. He does, and many other roles, he deserves Everybody to have- Everybody knows Doug Jones. He, he deserves <laughs> to have his, uh, his, his yeah. voice heard. And I, I think that that was an awesome, awesome effect of David. Thanks, David Hyde Pierce, for, for fighting for the cause. Yeah, and that's and your your clip there highlights another point of one of the reasons why I loved this movie way more than the first one is because it wasn't afraid to bring in a weird character. Like True. in the first movie, they go, "Let's bring in a human." And it's like that's a stupid idea. You got to like the whole point of Hellboy is let's get weird and a, a, a creature that basically is gaseous and has to be contained in a suit. That's a really cool idea, and they could have done a bunch of Hellboy movies with really weird characters coming in and out just to basically, and it's, a, it's a rotating cast. Like some, some people could have died, you know, that would have been, mm-hmm. it's like you bring in these characters and they, you build them up and you and people get to like them and then you have to kill them off. And that gives a little more weight to it. And it, they didn't, they didn't get the chance to do it. And, and, and just, I think you're right. And I think that that was a, a monetary constraint of the first one. Um, 
I don't know if anybody else has seen it, but I did see the 2019 Hellboy reboot. Um, David Harbour took the role uh, of Ron Perlman's Hellboy and, or from Ron Perlman for Hellboy. There's a couple of things I want to say about it because the movie didn't do very well um, and it was ripped apart by critics. Uh, it moved to an R rating and it was clearly an, clearly an attempt to take off of Deadpool's success. Um, now, First, I want to say Neil Marshall directed it. And Neil Marshall is, in my opinion, a fantastic director. Uh, Neil Marshall was one of the new godfathers of gore, along with Alexander Aha uh, uh, some years back. Um, he did Descent in 2005. He did Dog Soldiers in 2002, the independent werewolf film that's like Aliens with Werewolf. It is super great. Um, this film was problematic did i here's the pro here's the thing because i saw it at its very end of its theatrical run i had already heard all of the negative criticism with that in mind i went in expecting it to be god-awful terrible and it was not great but it was not as horrendous there were things to enjoy um and so i was sort of happy about that um david harbour does a great job as hellboy there's zero complaints with david harbour and for those of you who may not be familiar with him um he's uh, uh, uh hopper uh, sheriff hopper in stranger things um so he's kind of hot right now and and he's great he does a really good job um he not only looks like ron perlman in the makeup but he he gets it down and it's clear that he looked at ron perlman's hellboy and was like okay I'm going to do the best representation I can while being me. And I think it, it paid off. Mila Jovovich is in it, uh, who I'm a big Mila Jovovich fan. Uh, but, and I mean, Ian So Paul W.S. Anderson didn't direct this? It is, I, to be honest, I think he might've done a better job. And I love Neil Marshall, <laughs> but it blew my mind how many things in, in the new Hellboy were missteps. For example, it opens with a voiceover by Ian McShane and he like drops an F-bomb in the middle of it. And it's supposed to set up that like, this is not your typical like action horror comic film, but it had the exact opposite effect. It was like, oh, you're trying to be edgy. And mm -hmm. it completely tanked it. Um, and, you know, did it go up a little bit from there? Yeah. But as you said, we want characters that are weird and the effects are good, but nowhere near the level um, that, that uh, Guillermo del Toro brings. And at the same time, they brought in a whole new cast of Bureau people with unique powers. Not a single one is as interesting as any of the originals. In fact, one of they did bring in yet again, as you said, like Agent 5, a disbelieving human who's turned around at the end and it didn't play. Um, so watch it. You'll have fun. Um, there's a really cool tag scene at the end, uh, mid-credits, I believe, um, with, uh, spoiler alert, um, Agent Lobster, or Agent Johnson, excuse me, from, uh, or the Red Lobster. What do they call him? Um, he's from the Mike Mignola comic books. He's, uh, the, he's sort of the Captain America-esque hero that Hellboy idolizes. He gets a tag at the end, and it's pretty great. Uh, and I think people will be happy to see who plays him. So that was a fun thing, but I don't think we're going to see any more from that because it just it's, did not. It's a very difficult property to adapt. And it's amazing that it did as well with the first two movies as it sure. did. 
And I mean, just so there are, I'm sure there are original Hellboy fanboys out there. Don't get it. Don't, don't be confused. There are some great moments in the first Hellboy. In fact, the conference, the final confrontation between Dr. Broom and Rasputin is one of my favorite movie confrontations of all time. It was touching considering that it was between a genocidal maniac and uh, an old man. It was, it was fantastic. I, I, it, it really like at the end, I was like, Oh, wow, that was way better than this movie deserved. It has one of my favorite near ending lines too, when uh, Selma Blair's character, the love interest uh, and, and fire starter is lost in the ether and uh, of her mind, you know, she's been taken by the darkness and spirits, whatever. And Hellboy leans in and says something and she comes back. She's like, what did you tell them? He said, if you don't, it's something along the lines of, if she doesn't come out, I'm coming in. And that was just a great line uh, to fit the character. So Mandy, did you see Hellboy 1 and 2? I think I saw Hellboy 1 like right when it came out in theaters. I don't remember much about it at all. Didn't make a huge impression on me. It was like one of the bad guys full of sand. Yes. Yep. Yes. Okay. Like, was full of sand. <laughs> all right. Okay. So there's a dude full of sand. Um, yeah, I... I don't really, I'm sorry. I don't really remember very well, I mean, much I about it. I don't think I bothered to, yeah. I don't think I bothered to see the sequel. Well, it's sort of it came how, out. it's sort of how, it shows how far comic book properties have come that we expect um, a lot of things to go. We expect everything to be tight. It needs to be sort of a triple A big, effective, you know, master release film rather than something that's kind of for the indie market. Jeff, mm -hmm. what is your take on that? Um... Actually, I think I like the first one better personally. Um, but the the sets and and you know the Guillermo del Toro ness of the second one was really in full show. Um, I don't know. I I like both of the films. Um, so like, I mean, you know, I agree. That's that's my take. Different as well. different shades of of great. Um, but here here's actually the I think the the first film would do better released today uh, than it would have in two thousand four. I think for one you're right. reason. Uh, about 40 minutes of the film, the tension is, is, is meant to be Hellboy is stuck inside and his daddy won't let him out. Uh, this is maybe not <laughs> very relatable in 2004, but Quarantine. probably very relatable today. And I think probably a lot of people would feel really emotionally connected to Hellboy during that long stretch uh, where they may not have in, uh, in 2004. Okay, so for anyone who in uh, Hollywood who uh, listens to this podcast, hire this man because he's already rewritten a whole bunch of movies for you and just gave you a really great excuse to do it. <laughs> Re-reboot uh, Hellboy correctly. And as an yes. engineer, he'll fix your toilets. <laughs> I do everything. That's, that's, an, inside, that's an inside joke. I apologize. We're going to move on. We've covered uh, very little of our content in a very big amount of time because we started with a contentious one. Uh, we're going to go to Mandy. Which sequel did you pick to be better than the original? From contentious to even more contentious. <laughs> this is a little bit of a joke that I picked this. Um, I picked Blade 3 being better oh, than Blade 1. Fuck, yes. We all we all know technic the technically correct answer is probably Blade 2 is better yes. than Blade 1. But what I remember like cuz like I said I just have these like kind of vague um 
impressions of these films, like having seen them when they first came out in theaters and like not having rewatched them, um, except for Blade 3, which I own and rewatch like all the time. Uh, <laughs> but um, all I remember is Blade 2 was like, that was the spot, the CGI Blade movie. And yeah. Blade yeah. 1 like launched the franchise and I loved it because I love vampire films. I love the character Blade. And then I went back to see Blade 2 because it was like, yay, another Blade movie. And I was like, all I really remember from that was like the CGI was so bad in some of the sections. Um, but I also love Guillermo del Toro and Ron Perlone. So like it was good, but it was just like that was what I took away from it. And then Blade 3 came out and had Ryan Reynolds in it in his um, basically his audition tape for Deadpool. And Patton Oswald, who I am basically in love with. Um, <laughs> And Natasha is in it. And Parker Posey is in it. Oh I think God. I'm just like, basically, yeah. I'm just in love with the cast more than Natasha anything Leon else. Natasha um, is in it Yes. All About Evil. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, yeah. So, anyway, so, like, the, like, kind of gluttonous, lustful side of me chooses Blade 3 as, like, the best movie for rewatchability, um, although the technically correct answer is Blade 2. So no, 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 this is the right answer. Hold on. <laughs> I want to interject right now because this is, this is relevant. One of, the first, one of the first suggestions I made to Nathan when we were starting this podcast is I want to review all three Blade movies because awesome. I have a deep love for Blade 3 that I felt was a good topic for discussion. And Mandy, thank God. We're, we're like the only right two people on... We're the only two people on the internet that feel this way. Notice, <laughs> notice how I literally avoided talking about Blade until it was out of my control. <laughs> awesome. No, I, I think I, I actually, so when Blade, it's, it's, they called it Blade Trinity, Blade 3, mm -hmm. uh, came out in theaters uh, in 2004, another 2004 film. It came out the same year as Hellboy, remember that? Um, mm -hmm. I had a lot of fun because as Hannibal King, Ryan Reynolds just spits one-liners the whole time. Jessica mm -hmm. Biel. Oh, and sometimes well. he, he farts them, which is everybody knows by now is like my particular brand of humor. Andy and Jeff so. both love, love the bowel releasing humor. And so they, they, Deadpool was popular. So yeah. Deadpool did not Proof, have that proven. much. Not have that much. <laughs> but okay, here's the thing. Um, I enjoyed the film. My personal feel is that, and, and I think they, they approached it the right way, which was they tried to say, okay, Blade One is, um, we're just establishing the world. Uh, that was, um, uh, what is his name who directed that tab? Why can I not think of? Oh, I have no his, idea. He, he directed some interesting films um, and not necessarily my favorite movies, uh, but, but he did an Steve okay Norrington? job. Yes, Steve Norrington? Norrington, thank you. Yeah, Holy Stephen Norrington. Uh, he, he did some interesting things uh, with it, but mostly the success to me is that Wesley Snipes sort of embodied the character, the dark, quick, dangerous, um, always scowling half vampire who wants vampires. And, um, and uh, is it, was it Ethan Hawke who's the villain? This is, no. been, this is, this is calling many moons. Sorry, not Ethan Hawke. Uh, who is who is our our villain? Stephen Dorff. Stephen Dorf. How could I forget? Stephen Dorff plays Deacon Frost, the villain, and of course Chris Christopherson playing Whistler, uh, because I guess Nick Nolte wasn't available. Um, and 
they just set it up and then we got the like vampire deaths where they explode into um like sparkly flame and then go to ash which was pretty cool or when they release the special weapons they turn into big disgusting piles of blood goo which true blood sort of ripped off later um to great effect now the film was fun and it was nice to see an obscure uh black character from marvel's history come to the big screen and uh but it was to me like it was an okay film like i enjoyed it i liked it um, I enjoyed seeing it again, but there was nothing to like scream about. Like it wasn't a cinema masterpiece. Guillermo del Toro for me took Blade Two, and I adore that film because it's true you don't yet have Ryan Reynolds, but you have Norman Reedus, uh, who now everyone knows from Walking Dead, uh, playing uh, the awesome jackass quippy um, assistant. Um, you have Whistler still, Chris Christopherson, uh, and and you have. Yep, and you have um, the awesome uh, Donnie. Oh, no, Yen. wait, it was Donnie, Donnie Yen, Yen, wasn't it? Donnie Yen, yep. Donnie Yen. Uh, the blood pack, right? The, yes. the vampire. They were the vampires who were name. who were put together. To you have amazing cut lines as well, especially for oh, Whistler. Some, my favorite, and you have line of all time. Some of the single worst cut scenes of all time. If you want to see what, uh, if, if you've already seen Mallrats alternate openings that Kevin Smith did because the studio wanted him to and they were horrendous. Um, and you want some more scenes that were so misguided that your brain will stop for a full two hours probably and you'll think you did something else, but instead you just went to a happy place. Watch, watch the deleted scene oh of Blade 2 where Blade is in like a printed smoking jacket, uh, maybe had love with the female lead of the blood pack. You don't know, but that's the implication by being in a smoking jacket when everyone else is fully fucking dressed. I don't understand that at all, but that's one of the scenes. Uh, but Blade 2, the CGI is very apparent. Um, but I think part of the reason it's apparent is because it is one of the most epic WWF slash Dragon Ball Z fight scenes to have ever come out of the 2000s. Um, they throw them around and the, the uber vampires that are the villains, the Reaper strain are really cool, uh, really cool looking. And they sort of bring back a little bit of their freaky predator mouth opening upness with- uh, they, went, they went full Nosferatu instead of, uh, you know- Yes, normal that was a nice thing. Dracula looking vampires. Now Blade Three, Mandy, is when they said, okay, we've done the vampires, we've done the uber vampires. Now we're gonna go to New Way by bringing in the original vampire and pulling out something from Marvel Comics history, Dracula. Obviously Dracula didn't start with Marvel Comics, but they even referenced the Marvel Comics, the Tomb of Dracula, uh, which Blade was occasionally in, in the film. Um, they have Hannibal King hand Wesley Snipes a copy of Tomb of Dracula. Uh, as though that is somehow the whole, I don't think, I don't, I didn't quite get They've that. They've done this in multiple history. fucking comic book movies. Yeah. So uh, it didn't, uh, but I mean, at least in Logan, it worked, right? Like it was, <laughs> okay. Back on track. Very funny, very watchable. I'm going to say though, that when I watched it somewhat recently, it didn't hold up as well for me. And I think it's, it's Tad, it's what you were saying with Hellboy 1 for me. The plot is what the plot's what the plot's inconclusive it's a dumpster <laughs> fire it seriously it is, is. And it's so much fun but it doesn't matter <laughs> it's, it's all characters it's nothing but character mm -hmm. yeah. fuck the plot mm -hmm. fuck the plot look what's going on here look at triple h right well, 
they have what are they, like Pomeranian vampires. Yeah. Like. Yep. They, you know, um, I don't. We have Parker they, Posey. Yeah. Uh, who's Parker been Posey in, was amazing in this movie. She's mm-hmm. been in so many independent films, and yet this is still the one where she says "pussy" and "dick" the most, probably, mm-hmm. which is saying something. <laughs> um, Dominic. She Purcell, has some great hair. Please, like it just who's Dracula? Who they call Drake? Can we not do that? Mm-hmm. That's one thing I did not enjoy. Um, it's calling Dracula Jake um, or Drake. I did. I didn't. I did not dig that. Um, Jake is oh, even better. Also, can we can <laughs> we just can we just discuss that Whistler is apparently Whistler's last name and not a nickname because his daughter is named Abigail Whistler. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that is questionable to me i feel like Um, that was an oversight that uh, that was questionable well okay so let's talk about who made this film david s goyer more commonly known as david goyer um he directed and wrote this film and that was his deal for for doing this movie because he wrote the first two films is he wanted to direct the next one guillermo del toro did not direct this because he turned it down because he did not like working with wesley snipes that is Mm -hmm. a common complaint um, and it's most likely why we haven't seen Wesley Snipes in anything recently. In fact, I did see Wesley Snipes in a movie uh, from, I think, last year, and it was too poor for the Sci-Fi Channel to put on at 6 <laughs> o'clock in the morning on a Saturday. It was not a good show. I've heard some fabulous stories about the filming of um, Blade 3. Oh, yeah. Blade 3. In relation, to what, in relation to how horrible it was working with Wesley Snipes. Can you imagine having um, Triple H and Wesley Snipes on the same set? Those giant fucking egos? Yeah. I, yeah. Armed Response, we came out in 2017, um, and it is sort of a weird, undead, military direct-to-video film that uh, is, uh, is 93 minutes that I will never get back. Um, <laughs> I don't recommend it. Um, speak, I will just say this, interesting side note, Marvel is bringing Blade into their cinematic universe, apparently. Um, and uh, if anyone really likes Blade uh, and didn't know, they did do a television series very, very briefly. I don't even think they made it through a season. I think they had like a pilot film and then a couple of episodes. And it, it was awful. It was truly horrendous. Um, at one point, he's threatening and torturing a vampire for information with a tattoo gun. I'm sorry. Uh <laughs> I don't even, I mean, it's very painful, but a normal human being can endure that on a regular basis. I, I am, can you endure the hep C? Uh, I mean, you know, I, I just, I didn't, I didn't understand. <laughs> back to the, back to the point, Blade 3. So David Goyer got to direct this and I think he did an okay job. I don't think there was anything wrong with the directing in this film. Um, and I think that, and for anyone looking up his name, Coyer has written a gajillion, gajillion films. Um, and he has, uh, I mean, everything from Batman Begins and The Dark Knight to the Blade films to films that I thought were really terrible. Um, he wrote Dark City, which is an amazing film. Uh, he wrote Batman vs. Superman, um, which... Oh no! Problematic, but oh, there's. No. Hey, the director's cut was far superior. It uh, was. I watched it, but that yes. excuse the last thirty fucking minutes of that movie. I do not. You do not excuse yourself. We can. We can. Uh, we can no. get in that fight when we do Man of Steel. All right, we'll get in that fight. We then. can. We we certainly can. But he wrote. Um. But he also he wrote. Uh, um. 
which was some of the, oh, by the way, he, he wrote um, the, the Nick Fury television movie uh, starring David Hasselhoff as Nick Fury, yeah. which I would love to discuss someday in depth. Um, but he's also, he wrote some good movies and he wrote some bad movies. He wrote The Crow City of Angels, which was not a good movie, um, even though I own it and watch it on occasion. <laughs> Um, he he wrote the Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance, which was okay. Um, and like I said, when he writes his own property, like Dark City, I think it's beautiful and brilliant. When he writes um, what he normally writes, which is for pre-existing properties, it is hit or miss. Uh, I hope he nails it out of the park with the new Hellraiser reboot that, that he's working on and the Masters of the Universe reboot, but it's awesome. really up in the air. There is no guarantee. Uh, it's it's unclear whether we will get the great man of steel, David Goyer, or whether we'll get um, the dumpster fire jumper, David Goyer. Wait, uh, did you just call jumper a uh, dumpster fire? I did. Okay, you just redeemed yourself. Well, <laughs> I, I'm only human. Um, so, so I, I like the, that film. I, I like that. Well, here's the thing. We all the effects are fun. I did not think that was a good movie. I did not think that was a good movie. Uh, and, and just to bring everything back to, uh, to full moon features, since I haven't mentioned it in a full 24 hours. Um, <laughs> one of, one of Goyer's earliest films, his third feature length film was the screenplay for demonic toys, which is a full moon feature. So uh, there you go. It all ties um, together somehow. And, and I love it because it means that- Are we paid by them, by the way? That's what I said. Where's our sponsorship? Sponsor We're not sponsored by Full Moon Video yet. Um, well, we should sure. be. I Oh, absolutely. There's no question. Uh, he also wrote Arcade, which is also was has been released by them uh, in 92 the next year. Um, but uh, I just love that no matter what, he can never escape the fact that he wrote Demonic Toys because every year they release- or every couple of years, Full Moon releases another more insane sequel. He's always going to be credited because he created the characters. <laughs> All right. So, uh, Jeff, do you have any input on this uh, this glorious piece of cinematic magic that is Blade mm, Trinity? I don't know. Uh, we we I talked about it with my sister offline. Fair enough. I think my my points got through. Oh. Oh. Okay. Want... All right. So <laughs> there Listen, was blood want... to be drawn. Here, here's the thing. I'm going to mention one more thing that I remember about Blade Trinity being a little insane, which is um, that Jessica Beale's character, a Whistler's daughter, who's a vampire hunting master, uh, her like prep to fighting vampires oh. is to um, uh, well, one, she's in the shower, sitting on the floor, naked, crying. I guess at some point. I don't know why. I don't remember. Uh, I don't think it's important. But Natasha gets killed. I would sit on the floor I, of my shower and cry. True. I would too. I, which is, oh, ouch, I forgot. Okay. I, think I did. Um, yeah. I, <laughs> it happens occasionally. <laughs> um, is uh, uh, she puts in earphones with like pre dubstep electronica and somehow fights without hearing anything ever, I guess. Uh, with his blazing ears and that was the that was the scene where i'm like i think we crossed the line from badass to completely and utterly stupid Nate, we had this exact same conversation in 04 after leaving the theater we were like did she just fight I, with ear, ear I'm having flashbacks. In? yes i'm having flashbacks interesting story about jessica beale i once sat next to her at a restaurant the product I placement Oh, oh, right. This was the one that made a lot of product the placement. The product money. placement. 
Let's give mm -hmm. a rundown. Which what what uh, yeah. products do we have to buy now? I don't know. I which, mean, like, which earbuds are sponsoring Colton Classic? Oh, none. Right. Oh. No. no. Yeah, I know, but I just remember that from Blade Through, there was a lot of product placement. There was a lot of product Because it was like what the cool kids were doing with their little iPods and like making the playlist was like a big deal. They had the little then. laptops, you know? Hey, yeah, I which is not like a thing that we recognize anymore, but back then it was like way cool. I went to Vegas with Tad once and he would not get off his fucking mini laptop. We were in Vegas and he was on his mini laptop in the buffet. That's, did you just give a rocker symbol to that? Sure did. Yeah, I, I <laughs> I'm a badass. So, here's an interesting I story. I, I, I didn't meet Jessica Beale, but I did sit four inches from her. Her back was to mine. Uh, we were the only ones in the restaurant. Is well, my table and her table. I was there uh, with uh, my parents, and we were visiting a good friend of mine who lived in California before I moved out here. And uh, he was the waiter. And uh, I bumped the chair and I turned around to say, I'm sorry. And this, she's really little, I guess, or at least to me. Uh, and she turned around and she had a full hoodie on with like a, I think she might've even had a hat on or something holding her bangs back. And she was horrified that they'd sat someone next to her probably because the place was literally empty except for us. Um, and also that she would be recognized. Well, I recognized her, but I was not a massive fan or anything. What's funnier is that I didn't recognize until much later that Justin Timberlake was the one next to her um, because I couldn't have given a rat's ass. <laughs> uh, and, and they were terrified. I think that they were, they were probably pretty happy that we didn't bother them, but uh, I thought that was interesting. I was just like, oh, it's Jessica Biel from Blade Trinity. Uh, and, and then when Justin Timberlake was across from her, so interesting. That's literally just me name dropping. And it wasn't even that I met someone. It was that I bumped into them and they looked at me with a, a face of horror. Nate's accidentally bumped a lot of famous people. I have. It's a, it's a hazard of being in, in Southern California. What, okay. is, hmm? what is everyone's favorite Blade Trinity quote? Everyone stop saying dick. It's provoking my envy. That is Parker and, Posey. And then Triple H, oh, when did you see my dick? That's your favorite? Yeah. Oh, let's see. What? I don't know. There's, it's so quotable. Uh, it's just, there's so many. <laughs> I, it's either like the dojo line, like the like Ryan, but I don't know, just like, is like the local dojo, like the way he says it. Oh, it's, that's fantastic. We have a clip here. We have a clip uh, yeah. with Ryan Reynolds. Let's take a listen. He was born perfect. And just like the great white shark, this guy has never had to evolve. Forget the movies, forget the books. There's no happy ending with this guy. He's been there, moving behind the scenes, cutting a bloody fucking path through the ages until suddenly, just like that, he up and disappeared. So let's, let's just make a mention this is part of the dumpster fire that is the plot, which is um, they claim that the Dracula or Drake has been uh, cutting a bloody swath through history, working behind the scenes. Yet when he's resurrected uh, or really dug out of concrete or whatever, uh, all he or stone, all he does is have sex with Parker Posey and then walk around a lot. 
Um, with open shirts. With open please. shirt. And does, yes. does he even, is the armor come off? I can't remember. He has this one, like, he wears like half armor. Like a pauldron. Half yeah. Pauldron. Misunderstood, man. So, and All it's Dominic to do Purcell. Is bang from, and walk around jailbreak. shirtless. <laughs> got this reputation. <laughs> I, I, it just, it, it, I don't like, and in that voiceover, we get like this 3D, like bloody skull face, like monster with armor that we assume Dracula looks like. Do we ever see that? No, no, it's just there was it's no Dominic Purcell. So um, I don't, I don't know. Um, it don't wasn't know. important. It's true. It wasn't. It important. wasn't important at all. It was. Um, and and what was? And, and, and it's not a quote, but I did like when Blade is like reading them for filth about how inappropriate and undisciplined they are as a as a fighting group. When um, he's like, "What is this? It's a joke?" And he's pointing, and it's like, "Hello, my name is Fuck You." <laughs> Or something yeah. on the rules. Yeah, yeah. There, there. It, it really is, and it. Frankly, I think it's kind of a predecessor. You said Deadpool, and of course, Ryan Reynolds playing Deadpool. It certainly is, but I think it's a predecessor to the tone that Marvel has adopted for their franchises. Um, as, uh, as, as Jonah Hill. Not excuse me, not Jonah Hill. Seth Rogen. Uh, was it Jonah Hill? Now I'm second guessing myself. But anyway, one of That's the, the difference sort of funny, mildly overweight people in Hollywood right now uh, said that uh, Marvel is the competition for comedy movies because their movies are genuinely funny. And I think it's true. Mm -hmm. I think that that's a fair thing to say. And this is one of those where um, Blade had never been heavy on humor. There was usually a little bit here or there, um, but this film was heavy on the humor. Uh, and I think that that's one of the reasons that we all like it and watch it, even though, as you said, the plot is a dumpster fire. This movie is a comedy dick slap. Like, it doesn't hit you in the face. It just smacks you with a dick because it, the movie is about dicks. It is about dicks, yeah. I a lot of dicks. Thank you. It was hilarious and showing my mom a scene that it was with Parker Posey. It was very well acted and she was horrified. And I was like, oh, right. They're talking about genitalia. I didn't even yeah, yeah. think about it. A lot. <laughs> yeah. I'm actually surprised that your mom was offended. Uh, she's not offended. I think more surprised. She's uh, just more like, where did that come from? Why is my yeah? So my favorite quotes, you guys, what do you mean? It's my yes. movie. My favorite oh, quotes. I so I think my absolute favorite quote is the um, and the one that like I most often think about or even say is like they just dial up the satellite, which is in space. Like <laughs> I don't even. That must, and I, that's one of those <laughs> things that I assume is ad libbed. You know? Yeah, it must have been. And he's talking about like he has like a microchip like paper. in his butt by like the hello kitty tattoo and like it's just total like ryan metal's gold you just now people can see why i love ad libbing so much it's like you know at some point this, they, they looked at the script and went fuck this all right let's just, what? just do whatever whatever you want here's yeah. the thing mm -hmm. i'm i'm pretty sure that you were there when we were watching outtakes from dogma and for you to then say that you like ad lib I don't know how you can live with yourself because the ad lib between Ben Affleck and Matt Damon and Dogma is enough to, I mean, I. But I, that's Ben Affleck who like his be best acting scene ever was in, um, what's that like the casino movie and he gets shot dead like right at the beginning. And it's like a total surprise that Ben Affleck's the one that dies. And then someone comes up and starts squeezing his cheeks and like making him fake talk. That was like the best acting that Ben Affleck's ever done in his entire career. I disagree. <laughs> I disagree. He's learned. He's learned very well. The way back was 
an, a decent movie or decent <laughs> acting at least and we're we're gonna get on a ben affleck kick. ben affleck i got your back we i love got you, your ben. i got your big tattooed back and i want you on this podcast and we can talk oh, about the town we can talk about batman we can talk about batman we can talk about <laughs> mall rats we can talk about mall rats too okay now <clears throat> let's uh accountant let's, the accountant the sequel to the accountant that's coming out i guess mm-hmm, anyway mm-hmm, all right mm-hmm. we're gonna we're gonna move on blade three blade trinity interesting choice glad we talked about it uh i'm gonna go next and we'll save uh the jeff for last Ooh. uh my pick uh for sequels better than the original i don't know how people will feel about this uh toy story 2 toy mm. story 2 is a thousand times better than the first Toy Story movie. And I, it's funnier. There's a lot more jokes, laughs per minute. Um, and here's my, pr- I guess it's more that I have a problem with Toy Story 1 and not just the fact that I love Toy Story 2, which I do. Uh, Toy Story 1 is a children's movie that is a, basically has the mayor of a small community trying to arrange the appearance of an accidental death for a mentally or developmentally challenged individual who is new in town. That is the plot of the first Toy Story film. It is nothing but Woody, who is the leader of this ragtag bunch of toys, uh, trying to get rid of, uh, of Buzz Lightyear, uh, who clearly is mentally deficient in this film. He is not, I'm not trying to, I'm trying to find the proper terms, but he doesn't know what reality he's in. Uh, He doesn't interact well with people around him. He thinks he can fly. And, uh, And Woody's response to this is, I need him to jump out a window as soon as possible. (laughs) And that is the entire, and then the entire film is Buzz essentially jumping out that window and Woody feeling guilty, it's, and it's a telltale heart scenario, but he has the chance to get him back. So he does that, you know, he's digging under the floorboards the whole time. And that to me was a bummer of a film. Uh, <laughs> you know, now that I- Funny considering Toy Story 3. Toy, like, here's the thing about Toy Story 3 and Toy Story 4, uh, yeah. which is also a great film, but this is a, it's a great franchise, is they're sad, um, but they've built a relationship together that works. And the relationship is so disturbing in the first movie. And this is coming from a guy who, I watched two cannibal movies today. It doesn't, I don't, <laughs> like, that's, it's, but, but when you tell me, when you tell me that a person in power is trying to, to off uh, whoever's new in town and has a, a mental and physical disability, or at least mental disability, seems physically quite agile, uh, that's a problem for me. That is a problem for me. Now, and then he still remains mayor at the end. I feel like maybe it's the political climate. I'm, I'm concerned for the election. Everybody get out there and vote if you're voting Democratic. Uh, otherwise, sleep in. And um, Toy Story 2 is great. And Toy Story 2 is funny because you have a new dynamic set up where Buzz and Woody are friends. Buzz is still out there uh, on his own little mental planet. Um, but all the toys like everyone. And then Woody's the one that goes missing and they have to get him back but he meets a great cast of characters. Let's listen to, to this clip. Yeah! Oh, oh, it's you! It's you! It's you! It's you! It's you! It's really you! It's me! Where's the snake in my boot? Ha! It is! 
It's a box. He's meant in the box. Never been opened. Turn me around, Bullseye, so I can see. Why, the prodigal son has returned. So, uh, <laughs> to me, there's a lot to unpack there because you have Joan Cusack as a Woody's um, uh, toy world sidekick, Jesse, who is, her face is manic and crazy and of course it's plastic so she's kind of that way all the time which makes me super happy because it's insane and then you have kelsey Grammer as stinky pete the prospector uh who is stuck in a box it made me so happy it made me absolutely so happy um and you you uh you can't to me i couldn't help but smile at the ridiculousness of the collecting aspect of this as a collector as most of us cult film people are we collect things that most people think are complete garbage um and and we put it on in a place of honor and that's really what people are doing when they buy toys meant for children and leave them in the box forever um it is it is madness and then to think that the toys are alive and apply that real madness of keeping things in the box to the idea of toys being alive that I lost it. I mean, that insane. And he turns out to be a villain, right? Stinky Pete is ultimately a villain. And of course he's a villain. He's been kept in a prison. He's been kept in a box his entire life. Like who wouldn't be, who wouldn't be, this isn't Mr. Glass. This isn't Mr. Glass. This is a literal box. He's, he is, he is stuck in confinements that he did not make. Um, so you have this great arc, you have new characters, uh, you have old characters, and of course, Pixar's animation is always incredible. Um, Pixar's uh, Toy Story 1 was uh, old enough, is old enough at this point that watching it again, it's totally watchable, but it is, uh, that was 95, the, the graphics have clearly progressed a lot. And I think that Toy Story 2, the graphics hold up far better, this film being 1999. Even though it's only four years, that seems to be the four years in which we decided that uh, sort of their high scale or high quality for the time graphics became our medium to low quality graphics now, which we still see all the time, especially in 3D animated TV shows for children. So um, it's, it's watchable because we're still seeing it. I'm not seeing something that's no longer available and thus looks very dated. I don't know, what were your guys' takes? How do you feel about Toy Story as a franchise? I agree with you on the, the fact that Toy Story 2 was a better movie, but uh, you just highlighted to me. So it, I never made those observations. I, I watched the movie when I was still a kid. And uh, now that I know how dark the first one is, it just makes so much more sense that the entire arc just is just bleak. I mean, even as a kid, you can get it. It's like, oh yeah, these, these like if toys are alive and they get thrown away, that's a scary thought. But uh I, I thought the first one was whimsical when I was a kid. And you've just ruined it. Thanks, Nate. <laughs> Ruining childhood since 2019. Yeah, uh, I, I appreciate that, though, because and it is. And now, you know, we get the sadness from separation in the sequels. And um, and I was one of those people that, I mean, I, and I think probably collectors are like this. I, I love items. I'm a materialist. So, like, the idea of toys, as you said, being thrown away is gut-wrenching because those are... 
they're people to me. And it's one of the things for those of us who love movies so much, right? Like we, these people live for us for a time. And so the idea of, um, of, of abandonment is very real, even though it's not a living object and that messes with us. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, to me, the first film was essentially uh, the original Rambo if um, Rocky had come back with post-traumatic stress and a head injury. Uh, and wasn't able to run into the woods and defend himself and have flashbacks. He instead was just, I guess I gotta walk here now. And the sheriff dropped him off at the end of the town and he died somewhere in the woods by himself. That's, that's, that's the Toy Story arc applied to the first Rambo film. So enjoy that. Uh, just, had the, just gave me the analogy for uh, Disney <coughs> Star Wars away for me. Mm. I, I have some thoughts on that as well. Maybe I'm sure we'll do a discussion on, on uh, Star Wars as a franchise at some point as well. In fact, okay. uh, com send us emails, comment on our Instagram and Facebook. Uh, let us know if you'd like us to do franchise episodes because I think we could do quite, a, quite an episode uh, on the entirety of the Star Wars franchise. Give me like seven hours and I'll, uh, I'll go through Christ. Game of Thrones from top to bottom for you. <laughs> That'll be I, about six of those hours will be the last two seasons uh, in rant format. <laughs> I would pay for that. Oh, the rewrites. I'd much rather listen to that than the series. I'm sorry. Not a fan. <laughs> that, that's okay, though. That's okay. Different strokes for different folks. Uh, all right. So we're going to move on. This is the last, the last of, the, of the episode and of the evening. The Wait, you didn't Save ask me my opinion of Toy Story. I, I left it open on the forum. You didn't like it. Let me, yeah, let me just really? do one quick comment. All right. All right. So Jeff, what you I, I'm a huge Miyazaki like. Yes. Like, Hayao Miyazaki. Miyazaki. He's like most amazing all time animated favorite. film. Yep. Maker. So the reason, well, one of the key kind of threads in all of his films is he doesn't have like villains. Like he just doesn't mm -hmm. write in villains. Like it's mm -hmm. usually a theme or, you know, some sort of like, you know, people versus nature. There's some. There's something in there that that's driving driving forward. That's not like an evil character. I think like Castle in the Sky has a villain, but pretty much everything that he did is villainless. The rare times he does have a villain, they tend to be very. There is there is an arc for them where you understand that to them they are they are not the villain, which is that old adage, uh, which is true. Every villain is a hero of their own story, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, so, so anyways, to bring that to Toy Story, the, the, the kind of the, like the arc villain of the whole series really isn't a villain. It's just the fact that we move on from things, right? And I, and I, I find that particular thing very, very beautiful um, and touching. And that kind of is, son of a bitch. is the thing that drives, <laughs> well, I mean, it, because it's, it's a real emotional thing, right? And like, you know, we, we, we have this experience with things and kind of even deeper is, you know, sometimes we leave people behind, um, which is the, the real tragedy that, you know, gets you weeping at the end of those films. Um, but like you know, Rambo. That's, yeah. But anyway, so, so I, like I, do, Rambo. I, I think that though there's, there's some like, you know, just baseline element to, to, to what they're doing over at Pixar. That's just like, I agree. Absolutely brilliant. Like they did it again with like inside out and, you know, they Absolutely. took like the idea of, you know, how, what our feelings are. There's no villain in that film, which Wally, check, Wally has no box. villain. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and I agree. And I think Pixar, their, even their weakest films um, are 
very good films. Um, and people are like, oh, I don't like Brave or whatever. I'm like, okay, but watch it though. Like you can, you can point the weaknesses of why it's not their stronger film compared to another one. But um, aside from the stunning graphics and direction, uh, their characters have em emotion. Uh, and yeah. as you said, and they experience things and we experience it with them. And that's truly uh, how you gauge a successful film in, in uh, a broad sense for everyone. Like it's hard for anyone to say a movie is bad um, if everyone were to experience it in a way that connects with them. Yeah. Yeah, like, you know, if basically 99% of people cry when they see Toy Story, they're probably doing something right. Yeah. And the 1% is our president. Right. I am. Uh, I'm. I'm now interested. Uh, we should do a mini-sode on Nate defending Cars Two. Okay, I actually didn't see Cars Two. <laughs> I I will watch Cars Two though, and and uh, I if I think it's defend worthy, we will do that. Okay, that's fine because I guess what? As someone who has an eight-year-old, I have had to watch Cars Two more times than I ever wanted to, which was zero, and it's terrible. And Pixar has admitted it's terrible. So let's get the, let's, again, we, we've got so many ideas as for new episodes. As someone who's not interested in NASCAR, I, I enjoyed Cars. Cars 3 was great. I didn't see Cars 3. Well, Cars 3 with a terrifying scene, but anyway. Yeah. <laughs> is if that anyone, the one if, where he learns how to drift? Or is that just straight up the first one? I feel like that's every movie. I feel like he has to learn to drift every movie. The, the first one, okay. he basically has to work off a debt in the middle of the desert um, by mm. paving a road. But the the third one, I remember this very specifically, and I'm sure it's recent enough that many of our listeners do too. The trailer for it, the first trailer, is um, it is filmed. I mean, it is it is created as though it is the death of Lightning McQueen, the the beloved lead character, as he rounds a corner and spins out of control and is a burnt, charred crushed pile of rubble and it essentially ends kind of with that and i actually was in the theater with children who started crying when the trailer launched because it was way too real and they didn't have a nice little tidy ending like it's his journey back nope nothing looked like they killed him looked like uh mater was gonna have to like do a eulogy uh and it was it was a rough one it was a rough one so they remedied that right quick yeah. wow Anywho, Anywho uh, yeah, from uh, from heartwarming to trauma, trauma. <laughs> That's Pixar. Toast trauma. Or they start with the trauma and then get heartwarming. They oh mm. up 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 broke me, broke yep. me. But all right. Mm -hmm. So I saved. Uh, this is I'm very excited to talk about this. Uh, Jeff, what is the film sequel that you chose as better than the first? Okay, so this one's a tricky one because I love both of these films. Neither of them is bad. They're just. And they're actually very similar theme, narrative. They're all, it's the same thing. But I chose, and I thought about this for a very long time. I went through hundreds, even thousands of sequels on Wiki to just find the right one. And this one just, this one ticked my box for some reason, uh, is Desperado and El Mariachi. Oh, uh, fuck. Robert so, Rodriguez, director and writer. Yep. Yes, he is... Uh, I mean, he's going to go down in history, like, honestly, as, yes. and, and El Mariachi is going to outlive Desperado uh, because of how impressive it is as a film. Um, but it was made for $7,000. Uh, 
Um, and most people that go and watch it know that, and it's part of the mystique of the film, and it's part of the, the thing that makes it so impressive. But honestly, if you didn't know that, it'd still be a, a very good film. And I think the thing that people uh, maybe comment on about this film is, is like, how did you do it? Like, it seems impossible. Um, and he's almost made a second career on explaining how he made that film um, in his, his film schools. But anyways, they, these, both of these films are amazing. It, it, takes, it takes the character of a mariachi. The first film is a film of mistaken identity. Uh, there is a escaped prisoner with a uh, guitar case full of guns uh, that is, uh, I, I can't remember his uh, conflict with a like drug lord or whatever. But basically, the drug lord sends a bunch of guys to go kill him, uh, and it's just based on a description. It's a, he's 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 carrying a guitar case and he's wearing like a black uh, outfit. Uh, and, it's a mistaken identity. They, they think yeah. he's somebody else. So and so they him. come across our hero, um, uh, and you know he basically is just trying to defend himself. Um, and he basically be- creates this, uh, this war between himself and this, this, uh, this drug lord. Uh, and it is shot, you know, it, essentially, I think that this, this film, uh, El Mariachi, is almost a story of friendship between Robert Rodriguez and his uh, lead actor. Um, I can't remember his name. Um, Carlos uh, Gallardo. Thank you. Uh, because it really, it, like the, the, it's not just Robert Rodriguez. I think he's going to go down in history. But uh, a lot of the reason that this movie is amazing is Carlos just did stunts kind of on the fly with very uh, interesting kind of cutting techniques um, and uh, camera angles to make it look really impressive. But um, he was he was you know doing all of his own stunts. He was jumping off of buses. Uh, even though they were going kind of slow. Uh, he was like going down zip lines um, and all of this for very low amount of money. Um, and so this movie's great. I love it. But uh, I do think Desperado is a better film. You have uh, some really top tier actors and actresses coming in, uh, working with Robert um, and shooting a very similar film um, it's about uh, Mariachi, who is, again, opposed with this uh, big drug gang. Uh, in this case, uh, his love was murdered by uh, this gang, and now he is looking for, uh, for vengeance. Um, and they, you know, essentially a war ensues between uh, the Mariachi and the drug gang. And again, like, it comes down to like Robert Rodriguez, just meticulous style. And uh, he really creates this very st- stylized uh, uh, kind of action film with, you know, like guns coming out of guitar cases and, uh, uh, you know, just very uh, exciting action at the time. Um, I, haven't, I haven't actually watched these films. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if I'd like the third one more today than I'd, I'd like the other ones, but... Uh, Desperado was uh, was a, a big movie for me back in the day. 
Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna weigh in because I can't hold yes. back anymore. Uh, yes, Desperado please. is actually the film that inspired me to get into film. I uh, couldn't agree more. Desperado is an amazing film. There's so much. Robert Rodriguez loves his craft and is so in the weeds in his craft that um, the lore surrounding this this uh, El Mariachi trilogy essentially is. The Mexico trilogy. Books, right? Yes, yeah. it truly books. Um, so he was in film school, I believe in Austin, uh, when he, he thought of this. He said, okay, in Mexico, I can, I can make a movie easily, cheaply, and then I can sell it to the Mexican market um, if the US market doesn't want it and I won't lose anything. And I think he, a professor, sounds like, yeah, I mean, it sounds like a good idea. So uh, the bulk of his cost was for film because digital was not available. Obviously, you could have done it on, on video, but he needed it to look like film because he wanted it to look better than the cost it truly was. Um, so I, I heard something like $600 is what he thought he would spend if he didn't have to pay for film. Uh, so that's of the $7,000. That's that's most of the budget. And he, uh, he got $3,000 of the budget by being a, uh, a medical... Med a pharmaceutical tester, tester. Yeah. and he actually has scars on his back to this day left over from it that he shows people when they ask him if it's true and uh, it was a cholesterol medication of some kind um and uh, i believe i believe it's the villain in the first uh in, in el mariachi uh is actually some one of the fellow um uh test subjects uh who didn't actually speak spanish and so he uh he, he had to read his lines off cards phonetically um the first film is phenomenal it's it, much like sam raimi it's sort of I, I one of those films where you watch it and you're like wow he did so much with so little and so creative um the guitar work the gunfights the setting the actors everything came together to be just the kind of movie that it's clearly an independent film but i feel like you could show it to the vast majority of mainstream audiences and they would enjoy the film quite a bit exactly um, they would be surprised now what makes to me desperado so amazing is it was it is a sequel he is del mariachi uh the original title that rodriguez wanted was el pistolero uh but the studio said no one's gonna get that so in uh, they called it desperado and in mexico they called it pistolero and uh the the title character is now played by antonio banderas who actually directed one or two scenes uh because they because rodriguez doesn't like using second unit directors um and it is just it is awesome it's there's a reason why Tarantino loves Rodriguez and why they work together because they have a lot of the same sensibilities. Um, mm -hmm. Every character that comes on screen has a little smidge of personality, no matter how briefly the time is that they're there. Uh, e even if we never know the backstory, which happens and I'm sure infuriates some people who maybe have different like needs for a story. Um, but Desperado has all of this sensibility plus Rodriguez's personal style, this um, uh, sort of Tex-Mex flair and uh, tons of awesome character actors. Cheech Marin, Steve Buscemi, Tarantino mm -hmm. himself, uh, Danny Trejo, who is of course a staple of Rodriguez uh, casts. Um, and it is, it is just truly a phenomenal film. And I wanna play this clip um, it's, it's one of my favorites from early in the film. Uh, the Meliachi has been hunting people or hunting drug lords. That's essentially what he does now, apparently. And, um, and so word has gotten around to all of these like fronts that there's a, a, a killer with 
a guitar guitar case full of guns who is going around killing people. So they're all on the lookout. And Cheech Marin runs this bar that's a front. And uh, Antonio Banderas has walked in and Cheech Marin tells him to stop. Here we go. What is it? It's a guitar. all heard stories of a guitar case full of guns. <laughs> I know. Just had to make sure. It's him! What, what, what? Yes, it's me. It's me. Huh? I'm not against you guys, so keep it down. Just keep it down, hey. I'm just looking for a man who calls Matargo. Not yet. That is the music swells at just the right feet. The music across the board, the soundtrack is a phenomenal soundtrack. Um, it's got Rodriguez's own own band on there as well. Um, I believe uh, Los Chingos, uh, which means I think badass or something along those lines. It's kind of a crude term. And uh, Antonio Banderas, a lot of his character is with looks, right? Um, he he really carries, and I think Jeff, you said this. He builds this character. Because we've got him from El Mariachi and we love this character. He's been shot in the hand, so he can't play guitar super effectively. And we see that early on in this movie when he tries to teach a kid something. And what's amazing about it is it's sort of like, um, it then is that that result of El Mariachi is now the drive for Desperado. Um, but it's all subtext. Uh, we don't really get the plot necessarily told to us that often, right? Like we know that... Um, uh, it, it spoilers that Selma Hayek, his love interest is killed. And that's ultimately why he's looking for this drug lord to kill him. But it's also, he's been robbed of what he is. He is an El Mariachi and he can no longer play guitar. So now he fills his case full of guns. Like it's this really um, sort of fairy tale or, or, or morality play turned on its mm -hmm. head. It's there's tropes in there that ring really true and deep to the stories that we grow up with of all kinds. And I think that's why it's so effective. Plus it's so hyper stylized. It um, is, yeah. That, that's the thing that, that gets me every time. Yeah. Like, and and that's, that's why Tarantino, I think is so beloved is he, yeah. he puts so much thought and detail and things that other people just kind of throw away. I mean, it's um, so and, fucking cool. It's really yeah. cool. Like the whole time yeah. you're just like, this is so cool. Um, yeah. It's often called a testosterone film because it seems to be that uh, uh, dorky, aggressive. dorky yeah. men like me are like, are like, oh, that's so cool. Like every time I watch it, I'm like, I want to play guitar. Uh, I want to shoot a gun. Yeah, it's, it's just because, I mean, plus Antonio Banderas, I, I mean, uh, uh, one of the other things, I don't know if this is true, I'm, I'm assuming it is because it came from, uh, I think it came from one of um, uh, Rodriguez's director notebooks, uh, of which he's published. They're awesome. They tell stories of his personal sacrifices uh like eating fast food every day until 2 a.m or whatever to make these movies and uh he i guess during the sex scene between um which is pretty tasteful uh, but very sexy between sama hayek and robert uh i mean antonio banderas he everyone showed up like the crew the crew showed up and and uh to watch <laughs> and Rodriguez is like, 
it was just me and the script supervisor and that, that was it. That was the only people in the room, but everyone showed up thinking that they could watch this scene. And it doesn't, it doesn't shock me because you have two of what I think are the most beautiful, uh, beautiful actors uh, in this and really the go-to for um, high level, you know, um, A caliber uh, Latinx uh, cast right here. And they're doing a love scene and it's sort of like, yep, that's the perfect storm. And I think it's funny that everyone was probably just sitting there waiting outside you know, for, for nine hours, a sense, probably. Um, Jeff, uh, I like that you said that this film and the first are, are hard to choose between. Um, and I think the parallel, Mandy, you mentioned Evil Dead uh, at some point and Evil Dead in the sequel. And I find this a similar thing because really it's shocking how similar many of the scenes are and the plot structure Ford from Desperado and El Mariachi. And it's almost like um, he said, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this movie again, but it's a sequel like Evil Dead 2, but I'm doing yeah. it again. But with money, uh, yeah. But with money, exactly. Yeah. And it's super interesting because um, they're both so awesome, but they end up having their own unique things that one Absolutely. will have that the other won't. Yeah. And, well, I, think, I think that's the, for me, the interesting thing about Robert Rodriguez is the movies that he makes are, partially a function of the adversity he faces um mm. and which is why I, I don't even i don't love it when like people throw lots of money at him to make a film um like i want him to struggle like in making sin city like he had to work really hard to create like essentially the style for that mm -hmm. film um and this i think the same thing because he basically had to do it before he got any funding he had to be like i can i prove that i can do this and then somebody will let me do it. And I think that's the same thing with El Mariachi is like, hey, I'm going to prove that I can do this with nothing. And then he goes and does it. And then he creates this really beautiful thing that's a function of how hard it was to make, right? It, he, he solved the problems that, that he was given uh, in a very, you know, crafty and in, in, like intelligent way. Uh, but it, it, it defined what was made. Um, and I, and I kind of find that beautiful. Um, in, in, in the kind of the way that he makes films. Um, well, and I, I think you're, you're, you're hinting at something too that um, is one of my favorite things about him, which is he understands the entertainment aspect of cinema. And it's not just that he's not pandering to the audience by making things that are highly entertaining. He's doing what he loves about them. And that makes, and it's, and it's because it's what he loves and what we enjoy that makes them so incredibly watchable. I don't think there is a single Rodriguez film that isn't highly watchable, even if I, I'm like, it's not great, or, and I think most of them are pretty good, um, even if it's not his best. And I, it's interesting you said when they throw a lot of money at him, I think the only film that they threw a lot of money at him was probably Alita, um, Battle Angel, and I actually really enjoyed that. But, and I see his style all over it, in the action, especially in the directing. However, it is definitely a different vibe, right? Because some other things take over. I mean, the, the visual effects by their complex nature are an amalgamate of people's energies. And when you have a film like Desperado um, uh, or even his older films, Roadrunner, things like that, like it's all him. He handled yeah. it personally. And I agree that those are so, there's, it's not that I don't like them all, but those are truly gifts 
because he puts so much of himself in there and controls every aspect of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the only thing that I would like, I, I love all of his films. I haven't seen all of his like spy kids films. Um, but I don't, I don't think that, you know, except for maybe the third, uh, Mexico truly I don't think he had like a really big budget in anything mm -hmm. he's ever done like I don't think anybody's ever given him it. my point is is I, I don't want to see that like I don't yeah. want to see like him get like a big studio contract where he's just pumping out films like I I think he works mm -hmm. you know in in that kind of that cheap like dirty like get it done solve the problems you know figure it out because like one, like one of the things that he'll describe in his like 10 minute film schools is like, you know, if you want to make a film, you know, do the editing yourself and like, think about the editing while you're directing it and essentially edit as you go. Like, no, like, Hey, I'm going to do a cut here. I'm going to do a cut here. And you don't have to waste a lot of film. Um, oh, and by the way, guys, uh, shout out to Ben Affleck, who is star of his new sci-fi movie, hypnotic. <clears throat> anyway, I'm just getting that dig in. I got you, Ben Affleck. So, uh, and send us money. And uh, you know what? Just show up at my door. I'll take you in. Uh, <laughs> we got room. Yeah. So, uh, Rodriguez is the other thing I just want to mention is um, because clearly we love Rodriguez, is that to me, and I love Tarantino as well, but I always think of like the Grindhouse um, pairing that they did together where. Death Proof uh, was Tarantino's. Here's the thing. It was entertaining, but it was highly produced. And clearly to me, if I watch, I was like, this is meant to, this is meant to look like a Grindhouse film. Rodriguez, his movies don't look like Grindhouse films. They are Grindhouse films. Um, it is just innate in him. It's, it's because it's what he loves, like to tell this weird story the way he sees it, that it elevates it. So they worked great together and they co-direct great together and they both have given up their um, memberships to the Directors Guild. Uh, Tarantino, because you're not supposed to direct, co-direct, or at least at the time, you weren't supposed to co-direct with another person that wasn't the Guild. And so uh, Tarantino, when he, uh, I think it was for... Um, from Dust Till Dawn, uh, he co-directed with with uh, Robert Rodriguez, and the Guild said, "You can't do that. You need to do it yourself." And he said, uh, "Well, fuck you. I'm going to do it." And uh, here's my membership. I don't give a shit. I'm Quentin Tarantino. And then Robert Rodriguez did the same thing and gave up his to uh, co-direct with Frank Miller for Sin City. And I thought that that was a really neat. Thing. They, they bring people into the fold. I mean, of course, Frank Miller's not a, he's not a nobody. Uh, he's, he's done plenty for the comic world and the film world as well. But I thought that was really cool. Uh, anybody else have anything on, on Desperado? That's a, I mean, similar to talks, I distinctly remember uh, Desperado being one of those movies when I finally started working at the video store. I'd never seen Desperado. And uh, Matt and I rented it one night, and I was like, wow, why did it take me so long to watch this amazing fucking movie? It is, if you like action films at all, watch the movie, because the style's amazing, it's utterly unique, the blood is copious, the gunplay is great, the humor is fantastic. Um, it's, the directing, it's just, every, everyone is cast with purpose, no one is cast because, meh, they'll do, you know? Even, even background people. 
So it's totally, totally worthy. What the and fuck happened with What's a Planet Time in Mexico then? Here's the thing. I don't think it was a bad movie. I don't think it was either, but... But it's a different film, right? Very. He's actually not even the, the lead character anymore. Um, and also, taking from the title Once Upon a Time in Mexico, um, it kind of calls back to the um, Once Upon a Time in the West, Once Upon a Time in America, these grandiose films that often have multiple pieces, multiple um, stories, and multiple characters coming together, often in a tragic way. And I think that that was his idea and concept for this, right? As he's like, I'm gonna take people who know what they're doing, give them a character, they're gonna run with it, and all of them are going to interact and come together in this way, and they do. And again, with that one, he plays with things, with Elmer Rapp's past, I'm like, wait, is this in the past or the present? Who's, is this person alive? Is this, is, wait, what? You just don't know, because he's doing it again, right? He's telling part of the same story again, kind of. And we don't know what's what it is. Yeah, so. I mean, storytelling was an element of Desperado. That was like a new thing that he he slid in. I, I haven't seen Once Upon a Time in Mexico in a very long time. I, I meant to watch it this week. It's a fun yeah, film. It's, it's it's just one of those. I remember us going to see it, and I walked out, and I was like, "What the fuck just happened?" It's one of those where people, because we all call it like like Jeff said, Rodriguez's Mexico trilogy. It really isn't a trilogy at all because the. Once Upon a Time in Mexico is almost a side story. It's like mm -hmm. a completely different, uh, we have, we have, of course, Mariachi is a, a hero in the film, but we have um, uh, the, the crooked CIA agent played by Johnny Depp. Uh, we have all of these weird side characters doing their own shit. I mean, one of my favorite scenes from that is when, uh, uh, is, is when, Depp's character sits down with Antonio Banderas's character and is like, um, this is the best pork. I can't remember if he says carnitas or, or what kind of pork dish he says, but I have this in every restaurant. And this is the best I've ever had. In fact, this is so good that when we're done here, I'm going to go in the back room and I'm going to kill the cook. I'm going to shoot the cook. And he's like, you want me to kill the cook? No, no, no. I'll kill the cook. My car is parked out back. And like, and then he does. He goes at, after the conversation and it's batshit insane, right? Like, it's just this insane moment. There's all those types of moments in that movie. Um, but the storytelling structure is so completely different than El Mariachi yeah. and Desperado, which mirror each other. So well, it's, it's it was... definitely, it's a complex narrative. And uh, yeah, like, like you said, there's a, there's a lot of characters. Uh, El Mariachi and Desperado are very simple. It's man versus lots of other men. <laughs> Those other yep. men are bad men. I think, like once upon, it's not even clear who's like really, like like motivated by what. No, Mariachi is sort of forced into his role, and Johnny Depp's character is the instigator. But for what purpose? I mean, money. But we don't. Yeah. It's more like he just he's in he's another agent of chaos, right? It's this weird controlled chaos. And then we have all these other people who are sort of ancillary or bystanders. Um, so anyway, I, it's worth a watch. It's worth a watch again because there's a lot of stuff you won't remember, I think. But um, but yeah. Uh, and if you want to see Johnny Depp put on a rubber glove to stick up somebody's butt, that's where you'll find it. Can he also right. have a fake hand? Does he have a fake hand? I think he, he does. I think hand. there's a scene where he, he like he sits he sits down and he has a conversation with somebody and he has like a fake hand on the oh, table. Oh, at one point, yeah, to, he doesn't like, have a fake hand. At one point, he the uses a fake hand. Yes. Yeah. Mm. And uh, yeah, that's a lot of, it's another chance for Johnny Depp to do bizarre things. 
Uh, okay. All right. Thank you guys so much. This has been awesome. This has been another uh, episode of Cult and Classic. Thanks for joining us for this Minnesota sequels better than the first. To play us out, as always, is the Chud with All About Evil. And I want to remind our listeners that if you enjoy what we do, please drop us a line at our Facebook, Instagram, or uh, send us recommendations and questions, or just if you want to say hi, send us a message at cultandclassicpodcast at gmail.com. And please, if you enjoy us and have a buck or two to spend, join our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash cultandclassicpodcast. We will give you free stuff. Dollar a month gives you awesome videos. Five dollars. See, I outlasted the credits. I do it all the time, but I'm still talking. Five dollars a month gives you a custom autograph trading card, and ten dollars gives you a sign and the trading card and all the free videos. Enjoy, and we will see you, rather hear from you next week. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to Colton Classic Podcast. This podcast is important to me, but what's more important are the rights, privileges, and freedom from violence of everyone in this country and in this world. And that means supporting Black Lives Matter. If you'd like to make a donation, please go ahead and visit coltonclassicpodcast.com where we have a list of places you can donate and help out. And please stay safe.